All right, everyone. I am so excited to start Down to Brown, part two of 2021. And I'm kicking it off with none other than Harsh of Mira Beauty Company. Harsh, thank you so much for joining. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. So what's it like in Atlanta right now? I'm pretty good, actually. The weather is finally getting a little cooler. I hate the summer. I hate heat. So I just prefer it to be freezing year-round. So it's becoming my season, for sure. And we haven't had any of the unfortunate weather that, you know, the rest of the country is facing. So yeah, that's where we've been. Totally. Are you a fall person? Very In in weather, not so much in culture. Like, I've never (laughs) been spice. Yes, that's what I was getting at. (laughs) You can tell a lot of about a person from their identification and relationship with pumpkin spice, I feel like. I think so, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm so excited to talk to you. I mean, you have with your partners created such an interesting brand. I was so drawn to it when I first saw it on I think it was Brown Girl Mag or one of those um promotional like you know elevating accounts where they featured your product and I just loved how it mirrored exactly the identities that it's supposed to reflect and the colors and the inspiration it felt really easy to connect to as a South Asian um, person so I'm really curious how you got started in beauty this is a space that not everyone goes to but then those that are in it it's also very competitive. There's a lot of folks out there. So I feel like Mira Beauty has successfully started to distinguish itself. How did you get started in this? Yeah. So I would say it started for me, I think like many brown kids, you know, growing up, you're a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. There's no real option for you, um, for many people, myself included. So I was in college. I went to Georgia Tech um, getting my engineering degree. And about halfway through, I just sort of realized like, I am not at all interested in this. This is so boring. There's all this pressure to get internships and jobs and to be doing the most. And I feel like for me, I think a lot of people can relate to this. When you're in college, there's there's always a deadline, right? Mm-hmm. Weekly, it's assignments. Then there's midterms and there's finals. Then the next semester comes. And so there's something that's always looming over you. So I just needed some sort of outlet to escape what, you know, just 20, 30 minutes a day to not think about school. So obviously, you know, there's Netflix, there's Hulu, there's these shows, but I really went onto YouTube and the two big things that really just felt like so good, such an escape were beauty tutorials and cooking videos, like those tasty videos. If you remember yes. the like chokehold they had over all of us back in the day. Totally. <laughs> um, and then it kind of, I kind of realized I'm way too lazy to get on my feet and cook something every day. So let me just watch these beauty videos. And then it was, I specifically discovered Jackie Ina. I don't know if you know who she is. No. She is just like my queen. She's um, a beauty guru. And so, yeah, it was just watching her videos and then kind of, at first I was just watching and then it was, okay, let me, let me go to CVS. Let me go to Walgreens and find super cheap makeup. And let me just see if I can play along with her tutorials. Um, And it really just became this amazing source of, um, creativity, just using a completely different side of my brain than you would in like, you know, calculus three or whatever I was doing in school. 
And that's really how it all started for me. I think just my love of beauty as creativity and then sort of reconciling that with my identity as a gay man, seeing the you know LGBTQIA plus individuals really finding themselves through beauty and finding this safe space online, it just felt so good, you know, even to be a witness of. So totally. I guess that's I mean, how I started in beauty. Yeah, the sincerity yeah. of your how you were magnetically drawn, it sounds like there was no denying how much you were naturally going towards it. And, you know, I noted that it's right. really interesting that you said makeup and cooking, because to me, it's not so disconnected. You come from a, you know, back, yeah. background in engineering where you are using different kind of equations and ways of mixing things together to simplify it in a dummies one-on-one way and taking that, like there's like sort of a chemistry, I feel like to cooking and even makeup, right? I agree with you. There's, there was such an overlap between beauty and cooking shows, right? And I think what I realized I loved and was so drawn to was in let's say a 16 minute tutorial, you can accomplish something, whether it's mm -hmm. making a dish start to finish or this entire cut crease on the eye. Whereas in school, you're never truly done with something until the semester ends. So that's yeah. like a four month period where everything's just looming over you and there, you just have no control. But if I totally. take 16 minutes to do this tutorial, I am in control. I can do this whole thing start to finish. And that just felt so like empowering, you know, something you finally have control over as a student. So I wow. love I really appreciate that perspective. I think a lot of us South Asian immigrants too, we talk about, especially growing up, like in systems of rigor, like education, academia, corporate, like there, there are metrics. And sometimes we're grown up mm -hmm. with such a achievement metrics driven upbringing of like, have you, you know, are you of merit until you graduate from this school and with this GPA, blah, 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 right? That we sometimes, I feel like, at least I certainly will speak to myself. I didn't know what to do with myself when I was like, well, I have no metric in life anymore. What does that look like? So ways to reclaim that I think is such a wonderful way to do, especially through your hobbies that people haven't forced you to do or anything, right? And have any influence that you chose yourself to do is such a great way to regain that feeling of satisfaction and know that it's not necessarily like an achievement, but it's a milestone to you because it's just something you love to do and enjoy the journey. Exactly. Um, yeah. Living a life that's so controlled by the metric, right? Getting into the best school, getting into the best internship, then the job, then climbing the corporate ladder. It's just always nice to have something in your life that doesn't have a finish line that doesn't have a set path that you can kind of just mm -hmm. create for yourself. I think everyone totally. should have that for sure. And what is it about Jackie Ina that drew you to them? What can you tell me a little bit, enlighten me on Jackie? Sure. So aside from Jackie, there were maybe like three people total. Um, mm -hmm. And they were all sort of just not like the cookie cutter. Jackie, for instance, is a black woman. And I felt like I never saw people of color really in the beauty yeah. space. You know what I mean? It was always kind of the white beauty guru and, you know, shout out to them. There's, there are plenty of them and they're very great. But when it comes down to complexion products or certain, you know, mm -hmm. how certain products will look on the skin, I just, I was always drawn to Jackie. And the thing about Jackie that I just adore, she will never shy away from who she is. She will never shy away from her identity as a black woman and she will always do what she can to uplift not just black women but minorities in general do you know what i mean yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah i think aside from the makeup you know 
skincare. I think we we can get hyperpigmentation very easily, people of color. We have certain issues that we have to deal with that we have to make sure we're taking care of. And she's just taught me so much. I just think that she's an amazing human being. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And I feel like also I can see that in your product now in the sense I've noticed, and this could be a hot take, so feel free to push back, but I've noticed that you don't necessarily you haven't built the brand around one person. It seems to be more democratic in that you Mm -hmm. promote people who use it and who, you know, other creators who have found other, you know, very, I was going to say creative, but creators creative, but really unique ways of putting together the palettes. And I've noticed there are a lot of spotlights. So does that have anything to do with also your desire and how you approach building your brand and community? I think it is very intentional. Um, I, Jackie is a great example. I think the people who have sort of ushered me into the community, um, I get a lot of my thought process from them. And then I think on a social and dare I say global level, I think society, we were once at this place where you know, there was this whole conversation of, I don't see color, I don't see those characteristics, all I see is talent. Let the talent speak for itself. Mm. And I guess I can agree to that on a specific level, but what happens when everyone's talented? Then it's sort of, if we are working to be allies to various communities, do we have to rethink the thought process of don't look at color, don't look at race, don't look at gender, when we know for a fact that the status of the community we're in now is not equal? And it's not fair to say everything's fine, everything's equal, uh, nothing bad has happened. So yeah, I think we're very intentional. And I mean, this might be a hot take for some, this might be polarizing, but my team and I, we have these very specific conversations looking at Instagram, for instance. We're constantly saying, how long has it been since we've posted a male or a non-femme presenting person? What is the complexion of the last six people we've posted? Uh, what type of art? Is it glam? Is it um, avant-garde? And we, we're we constantly pushing ourselves to redefine what we view as diverse. Because I guess the overarching view that I have is that you are never going to be as diverse as you can be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that mentality always forces us to say, who are we not representing? And a lot of the times, like you mentioned in the question, it is mostly our customers that we post, right? But if I'm mm-hmm. noticing that I don't have you know, an Indian customer in their 40s or 50s that likes to wear makeup, well, then that's where I can find them. There's, you know, there's an abundance of creators out there on social media. So if we're not representing a group, why don't we find them and ask a few of them if they'd like to receive PR? If they use the product, then we can post them. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I'm in love with that answer for so many reasons, because A, I just wish uh, inclusion was approached this way with most representative, like represented brands. Um, I think it's when folks say it's hard to find diverse talent or, you know, how do you think about diversity and inclusion? It's not as challenging as sometimes people think. Like it can start with small steps, like what your team does of just like taking a stab at, you know, what is the cadence of our sharing and seeing like, are we reflecting everyone? And if we're not, then let's make sure to do so. And so I feel like that's such a great way to even, you know, it's, it's very underestimated. I feel like that power of doing a step like that. And the other thing I wanted to say is that I think it is such a unique time to your point about creators, because 
we're living in a time now where there are these tech platforms that are super controversial, but if we've noticed, if anyone, you know, I'm in tech, so I nerdily follow this kind of PR space, which isn't always very juicy, but you do see that all these companies like Facebook and Instagram, which they own, and um, Pinterest, like everyone is investing in creators now, and even more so than those big celebrities. And we grew up in a world where Charlize Theron might have been in the Dior ad, right? And we'll still see mm -hmm. that. But I think the creator space is really where I start to think, oh, I could use it that way. Oh, I love that. Let me screenshot that and do it this way, right? And like take inspiration in a way that is day-to-day -day relevant, tangible. So mm -hmm. I actually really, really appreciate that Mira Beauty takes that into consideration. It's very much in line with where we're kind of going. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate that. Of course. Always here to boost you up. So <laughs> what is, speaking of, what is the story behind Mira's Beauty? How did you get started and what's your sort of long-term, like, this is what I envision for Mira Beauty? Sure. So I think for me, it started, um, gosh, when was this? It was October 2019. And I was just, I think, again, it goes back to kind of coming from a culture where there's always this set metric for everything. And, you know, my parents, I'm a first generation. So my parents were born and raised in India. They came here. They had, you know, their children, my sister and I. And growing up, it was always, you have to be successful. We didn't mm -hmm. give up everything we knew and loved to come here and deal with this so you can be unsuccessful. Um, yeah. And I think in college, I sort of, sort of realized, okay, like I always had that mentality that if I want to be an artist, I can't just go and be an artist because mm -hmm. I have no way to pay rent. I, and that's kind of ingrained in you, right? It's, yes. it's never chase your dream. It's chase something reliable and make your dream your hobby. And yes. I'm grateful for that um, because now, you know, I have an engineering degree. I have a way to pay my rent and I, you know, I have a roof over my head and food. I realized that my dream was to do something that I'm so incredibly passionate about. And for me growing up, um, it's funny to say this, I, I don't know how other brown kids felt growing up. I never felt American, even though I was born and raised here. English oh. is my first and only language. I always kind of, I always wanted to find representation somewhere. And I, I'm one of those people that just says that television, movies, they raised me. Because um, that's how I kind of got to know about American culture and American terms. Because my parents weren't going to teach me any of that. They didn't know what to teach me. Um, but growing up, I never, you never see brown kids on TV. Or at least I didn't mm -hmm. as, you know, a, a 90s baby. And I think the very sad thing is growing up for me as a millennial, I never even expected to see a brown kid on TV. I kind of just yeah. convinced myself, well, this is America. So of course there should be white kids and a few black kids and even fewer Latin kids, but I'm never going to see an Asian kid or an Indian kid. And that's okay. Cause I have Bollywood, even though I didn't watch Bollywood, I didn't feel represented by Bollywood. I just never thought I'd see myself. Um, yeah. But I'm, <laughs> I'm going on a tangent here. Um, to, to answer your question, I think for me, the biggest reason I wanted to start Mira was representation. I kind of, I made the realization that the way the beauty community was headed, um, sure, we had Fenty, which Rihanna has just done amazing mm -hmm. work setting the bar in so many ways. But without Fenty, you know, every fashion campaign, every beauty campaign, rather, was going to be the same cookie cutter sort of formula. Um, and so I really wanted to start a brand that 
when I got to that point where I have this budget and this campaign and I'm, you know, in stores, fingers crossed, I can show kind of the marginalized and disenfranchised parts of this billion dollar industry that are never really given a space. So I think that's sort of what motivated me to just get off my butt and start the brand. Um, A mixture of sort of that cultural pressure of be successful, but then I'm finally going to do something that I want to do and that I'm passionate to see, you know? Absolutely. I don't think you went on a tangent at all because I think Uh our passion for representation comes from those small moments like what you were describing growing up and even what we see, what we didn't see. Just now, like before this, my dad was trying to find something to watch. I told you my dad's visiting from India. It's a whole house full. And I was like, you should watch Late Night. Have you seen that one yet with um, Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling? Mm. And I was like, it's great. Like, you know, Mindy Kaling's representing the Brown, you know, crew. And he's like, oh, I don't really pick based on that. Like, that's interesting. Like, sure, we can watch. I'm not sure, you know, if I'm a huge Mindy Kaling fan. And I was like, dad, we don't have anyone. Like, let us, yeah, like, if it is Mindy Kaling, like, you know, I think she's great. You know, I don't, is she perfect? No one is. But I'm like, you know, this, this does matter. And I was like, I hope you do care. And I just kind of like was like, fine, you just watch whatever. And he watched some horror movie. But um, I feel like it makes such a difference to your point. Uh, I think television to your, like what you mentioned. Similarly, I wasn't represented. I did think I was really American um, in like the opposite realm. So I went through the opposite kind of path where I started to then my journey was more about the tipping point of finding the brownness and connecting with that side later in life. But it's, it's sort of like you look to places like for me, it was like Fresh Prince. I don't know if you had like a show or something that you were like, okay, at least they sort of look like me. So I connect, but it never felt whole. And I think that's why to your point about Fenty, like, I don't even know if Fenty is my favorite, like the makeup texture, right? Like the feel of it might not be my favorite all the time. But I religiously order it, buy it, use it because I know that I'm going to look good in it. And it's going to make my natural beauty elevated, right? So like, we, we don't have that much too. So that's why I think it becomes so revolutionary when you do have even just one out there fighting the good fight for in, on behalf of all the people. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I agree with you completely. I'm so happy you brought up Mindy Kaling. I vividly remember my freshman year of college in my dorm. I was on Hulu and there was a sneak preview for the show coming out and it hadn't yet released, but it was the Mindy Project. And I watched that pilot like five times in like the span of a week. And that was the first time in my life I had seen a brown person mm-hmm. in a leading role. And that was just I mean, I hate to say, you know, revolutionary for me as a college student, but then now these kids these days, I hate to say kids these days, I'm in my 20s, but, <laughs> you know, the, the middle schoolers these days, there's so many brown kids or so many Asian kids and it's just beautiful. Um, but yeah, yeah, similar to you, you know, I didn't have the Indian kid. I didn't expect to see the Indian kid. So for me, it was, was Fresh Prince. It was Lil Romeo's show. It was That's mm-hmm. So Raven. It was any uh, George Lopez show. It was any representation of minorities that I could relate to on so many levels that I still felt close to, even though they weren't brown. And I think in a way it was sort of a blessing and a curse because sure, you know, looking back, I can't believe I just didn't even expect to see myself. So I wasn't mad. But on the other hand, I got to relate to so many other BIPOC communities from such a young age. And that I think has absolutely 
affected how I interact with people today and how I make friends. So I'm thankful for it. We're talking about minority representation, which is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. The other piece I wanted to amplify was gender representation, because I think this is something that I really appreciated. And this is what stood out for me with Mira Beauty is seeing all genders represented. And that's not often something people jump to, right? Like if I can imagine a skeptical uncle or auntie speaking, I I tend to do that because most of your life is avoiding those questions and comments, but (laughs) um, is like, oh, beauty and a male founder. What is that? You know, like, is that, I thought beauty was for just women, right? So can you help me understand Mm -hmm. like how you would talk to this auntie or uncle? Like what, what is it that we also miss on mainstream, the point about gender representation in the beauty space too? Yeah, so I think that as long as certain people, whether it be gender representation, whether it be age, as long as we're seen as other or not um, the status quo, we will always be tokenized. So Mm -hmm. for as long as a brand does not see that men can play with makeup just the same as women, they will always go out of their way to include the one male to be quote unquote woke or diverse they'll never see that there needs to be just as equal amount of representation. Um, I don't, <laughs> I guess similar to you, I spent my entire life avoiding the auntie and the uncle um, snooping around. So mm-hmm. I don't know how I would, I know that I would say to an auntie or uncle um, exactly what I'm saying to you, that I think it's important, that I think this is a space that has been, I guess, female-led for so long, but it, it should be a space for everyone. But ah. I- I, I guess I feel bad saying that I just expect those words to go right over my auntie or uncle's head. And then yeah. they just say very good and walk away. <laughs> totally. But hey, even if they think about it a little later, that's a little bit of a win. But, exactly. Um, I, I, yeah, I agree. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, even now, you know, sometimes um, we talk about, especially my sister is a Gen Zer. And so sometimes we talk about like how the same things like we were, for example, pronouns are something that we didn't spend a lot of time recognizing as we should when I was growing up. I'm 31 mm-hmm. now, right? So I'm like the later end of millennials. And um, now it's more of a conversation, again, as it should be. And I'm so glad now in a company, we can't introduce ourselves without making sure that you include that as a part of your name, where you're from, etc. And I was just thinking like, you know, it's interesting. I thought I was so woke in my generation, but it keeps, we, there's more to keep challenging ourselves with. And if you're having a Mm -hmm. reaction, it's probably telling you more about you and what you're used to than the actual thing being right or wrong. Right. So when people do say, Oh, pronouns, it's like, well, interesting that you're having that reaction. Why do you think that is right? Versus it being right or wrong that we use it. So I don't mean to get on a high horse, but I feel like when it comes to gender representation too, I feel like it's so important for us to examine and challenge some of that toxic masculinity and notions of very, you know, strict gender roles when we talk about beauty, because it's so important for us to understand. Is it discomfort about you or because like, you know, like, because what's uncomfortable about watching, watching someone live their best life, right? And speaking of, I, what I really loved about your palettes is that they speak to a sort of experience and uh, a moment in someone's 
uh, life. So for example, you have your Bombay baby, the series where it's Beijing, Bombay, and I forget, I think Kalwazi. Um, and then you also mm-hmm. have the um, Holy Grail line that you released recently. So can you tell me a little bit about how you come up with their palette names and story behind it? Yeah, so, okay, so I founded my brand um, in April of 2020. And for most of 2020, it was sort of just getting off the ground. Um, You know, the day I launched my brand, actually, um, we were peak COVID, you know, everyone's getting fired left, right, and center. Everyone's getting furloughed. We're all kind of learning what furlough means. Um, And the crazy thing, and the reason I'll always remember this date, um, the day I launched my brand, April 10th of 2020, I launched at 9.30 a.m. It was the best day. I was on cloud nine. And then at 4.30, <laughs> I got a call from corporate and I got furloughed. Um, and I was so scared. You know, I had no idea what I was going to do. This brand was not yet at a place to, you know, make an income for me. Um, but I say all of that to say, you know, 2020 was sort of a year of growth and learning. I think our mission statement, the original was beauty on a mission. Um, and I loved that because it spoke to kind of there was always a purpose for my brand. Um, But I sort of started to realize later in the year, as I was sort of planning for 2021 and wanting to expand my product lines, beauty with the mission is great, but it's a little vague. And so Mm. that's when I sort of, I was like, okay, well, the first thing I want to do at the top of 2021 is release eyeshadow. That is, you know, everyone loves eyeshadow. That is a great way for us to get creative and personal. And so Right around the time I thought of my first collection, you mentioned Bloodline, I thought beauty for the cultures. That is Mm -hmm. so much more in line with what I want to do. That's so much more specific to me. So yeah, the first collection, Bloodline, it was sort of, you know, for the longest time, we we put statements out. We um, talk about things that are going on, specifically last summer um, with Black Lives Matter, you know, wanting to show our support. And whereas most people would advise from a business standpoint, is to sort of stay away from it, stay neutral. You don't want to alienate customers. And maybe it's just the hard-headed me. Um, Please let me alienate a person that doesn't believe Black Lives Matter, that doesn't (laughs) believe in stop Asian hate. I don't don't want their business. Do you know what I mean? Um, And I just had to take that stance and I had to be public with it. Because I think we, we were all starting to realize at that point, if you're not standing against oppression, you're complicit. And I, yes. I, I did not want to be in that position with my brand. And so we would put out these statements, you know, supporting these movements, things that we genuinely believed in. But on so many levels, myself and my team, we didn't want to be public. You know, we didn't, I didn't want to be the face of my brand. I want to be behind the scenes. And so naturally we'd get a lot of questions, you know, um, are you a black owned brand? Are you a female owned brand? And we would share what we felt comfortable sharing. We would obviously share so that we would never um, mislead anyone, but there was never going to be a moment that we could see where we were all going to get on a YouTube channel and, you know, answer questions and introduce ourselves. And we just sort of got to a place where, okay, how can we share who we are in a way that works for us? And that's sort of how Bloodline was born. Um, yes, I am the owner of my brand, but my best friends, the people I met in college, the people I trust with my life, are my team members, you know, they'll, they're the people that will drop anything to help me with my brand. So I knew that whereas I always wanted to highlight the fact that we are BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus owned, 
Mm-hmm. I also am someone who, I think last year especially, was really confronted with this idea of the model minority, right? Mm-hmm. And how the, upbring- the upbringing I had, sure, I experienced racism and bigotry as an Indian male in you know the deep South. But at the same time, no one ever expected me to not be good at school, to not go to a good college, to not um, be good at math or well-spoken. And so those were all stereotypes that were never held against me. If anything, they allowed me to kind of rest on my laurels a bit and still succeed, right? Yeah. And so I think it's very easy for a lot of us to say, well, I'm Asian, I haven't experienced hate, or I'm a minority, I don't experience bigotry. Um, but at the same time, it's important to note that we don't all have the same experience, but saying that I don't experience something, whether or not that's my truth, can make someone else feel like they're not being seen or to make it seem like I'm dismissing their experience. So whereas with that first collection bloodline, I knew that, okay, this is my way to introduce myself. I'm not comfortable um, sharing my image or my name or being super public. I mean, I don't even have my own social medias. Um, I'm just not Mm -hmm. into social media that way, but this is an opportunity to share more about me. So that one palette I was going to create, which at the time I didn't have the name for, it was going to be about my experience as an Indian American. So every shade in there I picked based off colors that I instantly recognized from my upbringing, right, as an Indian American kid. Um, And every single one of those shade names has a story specific to my experience. So is it the perfect quintessential palette to represent every Indian? No because there's quite literally billions of us and one product will never do that. But it's a way to introduce Harsh and who I am and how my upbringing and all of my stories relate to so many other people out there, brown or non, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, you know, with the first collection, small brand, no one ever expects you to do three palettes at once, um, at least not for a small indie brand. However, it was so important to myself and my team that my brand not be seen necessarily as Indian owned, but BIPOC owned, right? Uh, Because Mm -hmm. my team itself is 100% BIPOC. It's comprised of all of my best friends and all of the experiences they bring to the table. And so I knew even though it's so easy for me to market specifically as Indian owned and there's literally a billion people out there I could market to, I'd rather release three palettes at once, each one off of a different member of my team, a a different best friend's own shared experience. Because ultimately, I fully believe that as minorities, we are so much stronger together. And I just hate any time we are pitted against one another. And so that's where Bloodline was born. There's three palettes, like you mentioned, uh, Bombay Baby, which is uh, representative of my own lived experiences. There's Beijing Batty, uh, representative of one of my best friends who is Chinese American, same as me, first gen child of immigrants. And then there is Colwazy Queen, who is a friend of mine, best friend, who actually was born and raised in the Congo. And she came here for college, and that's where all of us sort of met and became best friends. And so just like Bombay Baby, where I picked every single color, every single name, and everyone has a whole story representative of my upbringing in my life, the two of them did the same. So I, for instance, had no control in their palettes and the color stories um, or any of the names. And just like myself, they're both um, profit-sharing partners in their palettes. Um, So yeah, that's kind of how Bloodline came to be. 
I'm really admiring how you approach this because you acknowledge the influence they've had in your life with you alongside you, but you have really elevated them as well, made them an equal partner, you know, even just the financial piece, right? That's what we hope to see more and more is not just using the stories of different cultures for the sake of profit for one's own benefit, right? It's giving it back to those communities, giving it back to the folks, the stories, the credit, et cetera. So I just really appreciate how you've done that so thoughtfully. I think, especially for our South Asian community, there was such an opportunity for us to realize as folks who could, who are perhaps brown or, you know, we have this identity that we can relate to perhaps um, to the Black experience, it doesn't make us one of the community. It just allows us some empathy and ability to understand perhaps the perspective and by un doing some of the, you know, toxic messages and patterns that we've seen in our own communities, how can we help elevate that community too? Because if they win, we win, right? If other ethnicities win, we win too. So to your point, I just love how you're doing that because it's so thoughtful and intentional. Um, And often I think that gets missed in this conversation with BIPOC communities. Thank you. And I absolutely agree. And so I'm so happy that would be that was able to be the very first, you know, collection, the major collection that we released. Um, and it sort of set the tone for the future collections and the follow-ups for sure. Yes, I'd love to get to that. And especially the one you've just released. One question I did have is even with the best in, of intentions, sometimes we receive backlash. So I'm just curious, like, did you ever Maybe people are like, it's flawless, but any backlash that you faced or critique that you've reflected on since the launch of these palettes and some of the branding? Absolutely. So um, uh, in so many regards. So let's start with, I guess, branding. (laughs) Um, So Bombay Baby, for instance, uh, the other two palettes um, from Bloodline were very indicative of the people behind them who created them. Um, For myself, you know, for Bloodline as a whole, it was very important for me to have a male character on the cover of the palette, on at least one of the palettes. Um, Mm -hmm. But then for Bombay Baby, sure, I could have made that cover who I am, you know, a drawing of myself. Uh, But I guess I, growing up, I always sort of, I always saw a very intentional lack of representation for anyone of deeper skin tones in the South Asian community. You know, colorism is very real in our communities. So I thought, and then on top of that, colorism against women specifically in so many minority communities. And so I think that was one place where I really was very intentional that I wanted the character on the front of Bombay Baby to not only be female, but to have a deeper skin tone to represent the billions of women, men and women within South Asian communities, not just India, that are never seen, right? Especially in Bollywood, there's one complexion that fits. And, you know, I, for instance, I'm, I'm considered to be very light skin and I can acknowledge that that's a privilege that I hold, but I had no intention of putting that on the cover of my palette, especially when, again, I look at all of my collections as sort of a cohesive piece the cover of Beijing Batty is a very, you know, light skinned male. So I didn't Mm -hmm. want to repeat that. Um, And I'm proud of that. And I, if I had to do it again, I would do it exactly the same. But of course you get a lot of comments from people, very ignorant people that said that um, the cover, that female is not representative of Indians. Um, She looks like a black girl. And I just thought that was so hurtful 
because on yeah. the flip side, you know, I've had 10 times as many people tell me, thank you so much. I am, you know, a dark skin, a deeper skin tone, South Asian female. And that made me think, you know, I wish I had seen something like that on the store shelves when I was a young girl or a young boy. And so you get a lot of ignorant, um, I hate to say feedback, I would call it more backlash uh, because those are people who I wasn't ever going to make those people happy. Um, mm -hmm. But then on the flip side, I guess, um, and actually this leads into my second collection, House of Avarice, I did get a lot of I guess feedback, um, a little bit of backlash on some of the shade names for that collection. Um, I don't know if you want me to talk about that. Okay. Um, so basically, I guess starting overall. So when Bloodline released, it it really changed the game for my brand, right? I got a lot of recognition, a lot of, and I'm so thankful, influencers with huge platforms that purchased the collection and reviewed the collection and had such beautiful things to say. And that really got a lot of people looking at my brand, right? Um, and I got a lot of, let's say BIPOC, because it was so many different communities, so many different backgrounds of people saying, it's so nice to find a wholesome brown-owned brand. And they all meant that with the best of intentions, I'm sure. You know, they were super sweet about it. But it made me nervous because what does wholesome mean? You know, we mm -hmm. all have our own definition. Would they know that I'm wholesome if they knew that I am a gay man that owns this brand? Would they think that I'm wholesome if they knew that I think we should legalize sex work or decriminalize it rather? That I believe in so many of these things that we as kids are thought to deem taboo in you know yeah, south yeah. asian communities the opposite of wholesome right exactly to that. and so i just kind of as much as i appreciated the kind gesture i just couldn't shake it and i couldn't go on without acknowledging that you know what i deem to be wholesome might not be what you all deem and that's okay and that's really what led me to that second collection house of avarice um there was this quote i had remembered from Gosh, middle school? It was an English class. I, I never cared for English class. I only cared about math and science. Um, <laughs> but I had this English teacher that would, there was this quote from, I guess, some book of poetry, maybe. And it said that love is a complete stranger in the home of avarice. And I was like, I have no idea what any of that means. Um, so I Googled avarice <laughs> I way back then. <laughs> <laughs> right. So way back then, I had Googled avarice and I was like, oh, greed. And so then I thought, okay. I'm battling with this whole idea of what is wholesome. What can I do to kind of shake the table to kind of let everyone know like, Hey, yeah, sure. On some level, we are wholesome. Bloodline showed that we, we care about our ancestry and where we come from and how the people that have done so much for us, you know, in the past have brought us to where we are today. But how do I also show that while still being all of those things, we are, um, sexual beings that we are considered to be greedy that we are chasing ambition and chasing our dreams and that's mm -hmm. where i thought okay i need to do something that is the polar opposite of bloodline and that's where i kept remembering that quote so i thought okay love if bloodline at the end of the day is characteristic of one thing it's love right love for our people yeah. love for our cultures love for our ancestry the a polar opposite the house of avarice and then it was okay let's take this idea of wholesome and flip it on its head so what are the things that characterize and define us as bipoc and immigrant communities that are very real especially for millennial and the younger generation 
that maybe our parents thought needed to be swept under the rug or were very taboo. And so that, that collection um, consists of three palettes. There's greed, there's lust, and there's envy. So very much so playing on the idea of sin. I adore that, especially because in our communities, sometimes greed is obviously when we do it in a way that's hurtful, in a way that's self-interested only, um, it can be harmful. But I also think that greed can sometimes be subjective in our communities because living your life where maybe you don't want to get married at a certain age or you don't want kids perhaps, or you don't want to follow the career choice that your parents might want, it can create conflict for us, right? Because we feel like we're being, right. we're, we're doing, yeah, things in our self-interest and we're being selfish and we, we never want to be selfish in our communities. Like, dare we, you know, <laughs> do things that we want that others might want, not want for us. So um, I think it's such an interesting tension that you tapped into. Absolutely. And I, again, like I said, we, when we have these discussions as a team, we're very intentional with the things we do. And one one way that we're very easily able to convey what we want people to think about is in the cover art. And so I had come across this amazing artist who I'd been following on Instagram and she had done this piece for Beyonce's Black is King. And it just, I couldn't get it out of my mind. It spoke so deeply to me. And I reached out to her and she was willing to create pieces specifically for the palettes. And so for greed, it's Damn exactly harsh. like- <laughs> That's totally impressive. I know. I was like, ugh, it was like such a pinch me moment, you know? Um, I love her. And, you know, um, sneak peek, she's actually working on my next collection. So Ooh. I'm so excited to share that with everyone. Um, it's our holiday collection. Um, but yeah, oh, so like you so said- fun playing on those ideas of sin, you know, when I think of greed, I think back to my childhood when, again, when your parents put so much of this pressure on you and, un, you know, unknowingly, they don't do it, you know, to be harmful. Um, they just think that they want the best for you and they're reminding you of that daily. Um, but, you know, when you're a little brown kid growing up and you work so hard and you get a 91 on the test and you come to tell your parents, usually their first question is, was what was the highest grade in the class? Not yeah. congratulations, you got an A. Yeah, I, I had such vivid memories myself of as a kid, I could get an A on something, but I'd be like, crap. And my friends, my classmates would be like, you got an A, don't be greedy. And it's yeah. like, you don't get it. It's not about getting the A, it's about being the best. And so then I kind of thought, are there other people in our communities that feel this pressure, but amplified? Because at the end of the day, I'm still a man. I still am allowed to go out and chase money and be told that I'm doing what I need to be doing. But yeah. what about women in our community? Like you said, if you want to be a woman and you want to get married and you want to have a baby, but you also want to climb the corporate ladder, our community leads you to believe that you're being greedy, that you're being yeah. selfish, that you can't have it all. And so for the cover art for that, we specifically wanted to have this badass female. And, you know, for anyone that looks at the cover, she has this headpiece on and there's all of these hundred dollar bills tucked into her hair and she's wearing these jewels. And you can just tell that she, it's, it's almost this character that's like, yeah, I was greedy. I was selfish. And so what, you know, yes. she was able to chase her dreams. And I think that's what I want anyone who, um, I guess supports my brand to know that you 
if you have a vision for your life and you want to do something that even the people that love you most think is not what you're supposed to be doing, it's not greedy and it's not selfish. You have one life to live and you have to chase it, right? Absolutely. Um, So that was the idea of greed. And that was very much so like a green color story, you know, very much so revolved around like the material idea of greed, right? Um, Then there was lust, which was a purple pink color story. And that I think was playing off of another big issue that I experienced and I witnessed in so many of the other brown kids I grew up with, um, really immigrant kids, is the idea of dating and love and sexuality. Mm. I never knew a single kid growing up, cousin, sibling, who had an open relationship that their parents knew of. Everything was this sort of illicit, clandestine experience, you know? Um, And I think that is kind of, in my opinion, that has been so damaging to so many kids that I grew up with in my generation because none of us ever felt the comfort of dating openly. And so everything we did was in secret. And I think that kind of played with how we had relationships into adulthood. Um, And then there kind of is the sexual piece of, you know, you, you grow up watching Full House and you expect your dad to walk in at 6 p.m. and have the talk with you and tuck you into bed. And that never happened. Yeah. <laughs> my, parents, my parents never had the talk. Um, I did not grow up in Danny Tanner's household. So any discussion of sexuality, I mean, I can, not to air my sister's business <laughs> if she hears this, <laughs> um, I have vivid memories of my parents and my sister arguing when she was in all of high school. She was damn near an adult arguing about how she does not need to be dating and her only focus is college and don't think about guys. And I was in another room in like middle school, like, well, if she can't have a boyfriend, I sure as hell can't. They're not going to want that. Um, And I think that was just this whole idea. And so for the artwork, it was, this is the moment where I was like, okay, Bombay baby, there was someone else that needed to be seen. But for this cover for lust, that's me. And so there's a brown man with facial hair, but he has this sort of snake of desire around him speaking into his ear. And the snake, I don't know what I'm allowed to say on your podcast. Um, The snake is morphing into anal beads. And that's just, Mm -hmm. you know, we are here, we are queer, we are expressing ourselves and there's no regret to it, you know? Um, I love that. I, I guess your original question was sort of the backlash, right? This... I knew that there was going to be backlash in this collection because how dare we, right? To play on sin that is so religious. But interestingly enough, there wasn't much backlash on the idea of sin. People got it. And I mean, you know, it would be the height of hubris for people to say, how dare you push this line when NARS has, you know, entire collections centered around an orgasm, you know? Um, some of the backlash I got, and this is a case where it's, I don't like to think of it as stupid or silly, and I don't like to dismiss it because it came from Asians, it came from BIPOC communities, and I think their opinions were valid. Um, A few people said, when I revealed the entire collection with the shade names, um, one of the shade names, and I I would actually like to ask you if you've heard of this term, one of the shade names in greed specifically, because again, it's this duality of chasing greed and happiness and success, one of the shade names was called Asian F. Have you heard that term? I have not. Okay, so for me growing up, I had heard the term, um, and I felt so validated in adulthood when I heard the term again. Off, um, Do you remember that show on ABC, Fresh Off the Boat, with the Chinese family? I did, yeah. 
yeah, so I heard it again there. So I knew I was, I was so validated because I, for the longest time, I thought I had made that up. Um, but essentially going back to kind of being the best in the class, you know, an A is the only acceptable grade. Anything less is an F. A B is an F. It is an quote unquote Asian F, right? Um, oh, so the, yeah. I, okay. This is in concept sounding familiar once we're describing it. Mm-hmm. I think there was a Glee episode about it too. You know what? I think there was. I think that was one of the first times because Glee was very much so around my high school days. Um, mm-hmm. And that was one of the first times where I fully identified so well with another Asian. And it was because those two Asian characters were kind of experiencing the Asian F syndrome, let's call it, right? Mm-hmm. So the backlash I got was from a few Asians saying, Asian F, well, WTF, I can't believe you guys would put that. And we just mm-hmm. sort of responded like, you know, we're so sorry that this hurt you. Would you mind elaborating on what it is that... Um, is so offensive to you, we'd love to know. And it was, they almost all of them responded by saying, I'm Asian and I never felt that pressure growing up. And my team and I, we, we had this discussion because you know we don't, every, anytime we get any feedback, good or bad, we just like to discuss it together and process it together and see every Yeah, side. that's really important. Exactly. And we heard them and we get it. And I love that for those people. And that's the kind of Asian parent I want to be. I don't ever want my kid to feel pressured to be the best in the class. As long as they're doing their best, that's all that matters. And I love that those people that commented had that sort of support growing up. Um, But I think that if I changed the shade name or if I never used that shade name, it would be almost a slap in the face to the, I'm sure millions of other brown and Asian kids growing up that did feel that pressure, you know? Right. And, I mean, I hate to just say brown and Asian. I think it's an immigrant thing because again, my friend from the Congo, my friend from Nigeria, they all had the, we all the same pressure. Our parents gave up so much for us that we had to be the best. And so to anyone out there that's hurt by that, that finds it offensive or thinks that I'm stereotyping a group of people, um, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that my collection made you feel that way. Uh, However, I cannot apologize for making the decision we made because again, even though that doesn't represent your experience, we never claim to. Just like Mm -hmm. with mine, I could never represent an entire group of people with one item ever. And I would never want to do that. So even though that shade name doesn't speak to your own experience, I hope that you'll be able to acknowledge that it does speak to the experience of so many others and the pain of so many others. Um, So yeah, you know, yeah, we have experienced, you know, good and bad feedback, but I think it only can help us grow. I feel like these things can polarize our own communities and Mm -hmm. it makes us divided before we can even talk about it towards any other group, right? Or like about it forever to anyone else. And so this part really kills me is like when we can't elevate within our own group sometimes because of that like friction of even like what you mentioned earlier of like, you know, well, I didn't experience racism. So this must not be a thing. And it's like, yes, that's wonderful. And maybe others did. So one thing I hearken back to is my Gen Z sister where like, she's really taught, like she's taught me this phrase, like, I love that for you. And I'm like, you know what? I really <laughs> like that because it's like, I, yeah, I don't have to agree with it, but that's a good look for you or that's a good vibe for you. Right. Exactly. And I think you hit the nail on the head with sort of that, um, the discourse within our own communities. And that's why when we get feedback like this, especially on social media, it's very important to myself and my team that, 
however we respond doesn't negate what the person is saying or dismiss them. Because to your point, this is an Asian person commenting to myself who is another Asian person. They have the right to their opinion. And I wouldn't want um, a white person, for instance, to read that and to feel like they have to take a side to comment Mm -hmm. back to that person to defend me or to defend the other person. Um, Because at the end of the day, this is discourse that I welcome amongst, you know, the people offended or represented by the term Asian F. So yeah, I think as much as it can hurt that there is discourse within our own groups, um, I, I welcome it. And I think that we can only grow from it. Absolutely. So what does your, when you think about how it's been, we're talking a lot about reception. So what has the reception been for you for the LGBTQ community too, and how they voiced. And I'm not just feeding this into like a, it must be all positive, but you know, what has that relationship been with your, the customers who do identify in that community and how they view the brand? I think overwhelmingly it's been so supportive. I, we Mm -hmm. have been met with so much love and I think it's just, you know, for so many of us who identify as LGBTQIA+, we oftentimes almost more so identify with other traits, labels, right? So Mm -hmm. you can, you know, for instance, we are not all equal in the LGBTQIA plus community. There is intense um, fat phobia, there's racism, there's anything under the sun that we experience. So for a lot of people, it's, I've gotten so much response of, it's so nice to see a black beauty boy a gay black mm-hmm. beauty boy on your brand page versus just it's so nice to see the traditionally acceptable gay white boy. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's, and that's, I think another challenge that more brands need to be aware of. There's not one size fits all. One person will never represent an entire community. So we need to move away from tokenizing yeah. some of these communities. You know, you can't just put one beauty boy on your campaign or in your Instagram for months on end and that's it. Um, so yeah, I mean, totally. I would say overwhelmingly the response has been amazing from so many members of the community. And also at the same time, people have done such a great um, and such a gracious job of holding us accountable, right? Even if it's not mm-hmm. direct or critical, you know, reminding us, hey, we see the beauty boys, where are the non-binary? Where are the trans? Where are the older individuals from the gay community? Where, you know, where are the people with different styles of art? And I love that. And I think that as long as people hold us accountable and not, you know, no double standard people, the people I see criticizing will criticize every brand and rightfully so, because we all need to do better. And without someone holding us to that flame, we can all be very complacent. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yes, absolutely. I think that accountability is so big and I, it, it reminds me a little bit about the conversation around call out culture too, and mm-hmm. how it has many pros, one of them being accountability. And sometimes it can, there can be cons too, where uh, sometimes a moment that maybe someone doesn't need to be canceled altogether, for example, you know, gets canceled. Um, and maybe yeah. we shut down the opportunity to learn from the moment and grow. So I think that piece to me kind of recalled like the accountability piece of asking to be able to further the learning versus limiting. Um, and I think that's what I was trying to get at earlier too of in that way, I feel like it can be hard when 
you know, we touched on tokenism and like, especially if there's one brand or one celebrity or one person representing something, chances are at some point they're going to fuck up. Like they might say something or do something, or maybe just even if it's slightly controversial to your point about the Asian F, where if you go the other extreme of like, you're not open to the discourse, you're just like cancel, call them out. I feel like it also kind of blocks the learning from happening. So it, it could get really interesting with like even the tokenization piece and like how, what we expect of the few representatives we have. Um, and it can become dangerous, I feel like, too. Yeah, I agree. I'm yeah. a huge fan of accountability um, culture and maybe not so much cancel culture, but I, I do see the need for it. And I do believe that mm-hmm. a lot of people that say, you know, it sucks to be canceled are really just people being held accountable and they don't want to take that look in the mirror. And I've had to do it. You know, we've all had to do it yeah. because um, no one is a perfect ally to anyone. And so I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm used to it at this point, right? Totally. We know we have to do it, so why not just take it with grace and not, I think ultimately it's very easy to, for people to confuse shame with anger. And mm-hmm. sometimes being called out can elicit that shame in you just don't let it turn into anger. Try to Absolutely. try to understand. You know? Absolutely. That is so well said. And you know, speaking of these types of responses and you know, conversations like we've talked about with our parents. And I'm so curious if you're comfortable sharing, you know, coming out can be hard for any culture. And I I wouldn't, I won't even pretend like I can imagine that experience. So are you comfortable sharing what that was like for you, especially given, you know, your background and also like how much that played a role in the brand that you built? Yeah. So I was always someone, I feel like I knew who I was from a very young age. Right. And especially growing up in the Brown community, you hear these comments people make. So there's always this idea of, you know, what a a man should grow up to be, what a woman should grow up to be. Um, And I kind of just made this assumption from a very young age that I would not be accepted by my community if Mm. I was gay, you know? And I think that caused me to be very independent from a young age, very, I guess, distant from the people around me, the people who loved me. And I think that followed me well into high school through college and adulthood. And I was always that one member of the family that never went to functions, that never was super close with the cousins. Um, and so ultimately, I kind of just decided, I, I always had this idea that I don't care what anyone thinks of my sexuality. Um, I have one life to live, and I'm not living it for anyone other than myself. But I wanted the people around me to at least know who I was and to not be yeah. hiding. And I just felt, you know, you always hear it gets better. And the second you come out, it's just this release that you have been waiting your entire life for. And so I knew... I wanted to tell my parents. Um, I told my sister, my only sibling, my sister, and um, oh gosh, maybe my sophomore year of college. And then about a year after I graduated, I decided, okay, it's time to tell my parents. Um, and yeah, I went home. It was in December of 2018, I believe. Uh, I told them and the reaction was so much better than I thought. I think on such a sad level, we all kind of have to prepare ourselves for the worst case, you know, to get disowned or to get in some cases even harmed by the people who are supposed to love us. Um, And I was prepared for that. Um, And I think that I hadn't realized that I was raising myself from, you know, 
the age of 10 onward to be prepared for that one moment, to be okay if they never wanted to talk to me again. Um, but I told my parents and they were so open. And I think to them, they had known for so long that I was so distant and they didn't know why. And I think for them, yeah. it was just sort of, if this means that we can have a relationship with you, we don't care. You know what I mean? And that was such a powerful sentence to hear from them. And ultimately, oh gosh, I think, yeah, yeah and I, I, it did the best for me. And I fully acknowledge that I'm one of the lucky ones. You know, there's a yeah. lot of people out there um, who are so focused on what the community is going to think or whether this is um, acceptable by the culture or the religion. Um, and a lot of LGBTQA plus youth uh, are harmed for that very reason. But it was yeah. it was great for me. And it was, you know, this is who I am. This is not something I'm hiding. I'm a part of this community and I support my community. Um, and then that naturally, you know, like I said, it was December of 2018. And I first had the idea for my brand in 2019. Um, but I actually didn't tell my parents about Mira or anyone really. Um, and I think this is more of a personality trait. Um, I always kind of told my friends, I'm not telling anyone about Mira until Forbes does the interview, <laughs> right? Until I <laughs> officially feel like I've made it, then I don't care who knows. But until then, I've just always been someone to kind of move in silence so that then if I change my mind, I don't have to answer questions or do any, you know, um, answer to anyone or feel like anyone owes a response from me. So this is so interesting because it's like very consistent with what you've been saying from the beginning of our conversation. And yeah. You know, I was going to ask you, even while you were sharing the piece of like not feeling close to folks of, you know, are you someone who intentionally keeps space between people? And that, that's not always a bad thing, right? Like, mm -hmm. but space to not only protect, but also to think about like your own thoughts around it, to think, th be more focused in and honed in on what you want. Because um, sometimes the opposite can happen too, where when you're surrounded, you're offering yourself up so openly and maybe you're not telling sharing your full identity, or even if you are, um, it doesn't allow much room for your own thought and voice sometimes, right? And so people, I think over time, find that way of like shuffling, shuffling and the right amount of like, I'm in touch with myself, but also I can share myself with others. Um, but even the way that you mentioned how you approach the branding, very customer focused, less about you being in the forefront. I mean, you know, one of my questions was even going to be like, why did you name it Mira? Not harsh, right? Like, right. so um, I think it's such an interesting point about you. This is well, very cool to understand about you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Feel free to keep complimenting me. I'm oh, always. of course. <laughs> So the next 40 minutes of our interview will be compliments only. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But um, no, I, I just appreciate that perspective because it allows for someone to really listen to what they need, especially when you're in this space. I imagine it's so easy to get caught up in, you know, the feedback maybe if someone gave a negative comment, you know, and to dwell on it or feel like, am I good enough in the imposter syndrome piece? And so I imagine that, you know, sometimes operating in that silence, I love how you said it that way, um, allows you to also like change course when you need to. Um, and so, you know, on that note, like, I imagine this space creates a lot of doubt and, you know, different questions for yourself. Um, do you ever experience imposter syndrome? Uh, every day of my life. Um, yeah. So since the beginning, I think it was 
you know, am I, am I supposed to be doing this? You know, why do I have the right to start this brand? Who, who even am I? Um, there was this idea of, I'm not a creator, you know, I'm not good with makeup. I, I enjoy makeup. I enjoy creating with makeup. And I think there are a lot of people out there like myself who, you know, I would never consider myself to be a makeup artist. I would never take money from anyone to do makeup on them. Um, I don't know if they'd like how I do it, but I have a passion for it. I enjoy it. For me, it's, it's almost like therapy when you get to play with makeup. And I think there are so many people out there like that, but it's so easy to say, you know, all of these brand owners are so good at makeup. Why am I doing this? Why am I starting this brand? Or down to my collections, you know, why am I releasing this entire collection based off of my insecurities, you know? Um, so yeah, I think every time a sale comes in or I, you know, Shopify pays me out for some sales, I always think like, do I deserve this? And that mm. I think is just imposter syndrome rearing its head every time or totally. you get negative feedback, even the smallest amount. And it just, it's like a punch to the gut, but you have to remind yourself that you're valid. You know, I am valid. I am taking a space that is meant for me. I am not taking from anyone else. Mm -hmm. And that I think is what keeps me going. You know, I think that's really great self-soothing and managing because it can really rear its head. I, I almost see the imposter syndrome, like as a person, almost, Mm -hmm. um, one of my coaches used to call it the saboteur, which is like almost similar, right? Like something that pops up and like decides to distract your brain in that moment. Um, so we named it and I named mine after, um, the character in house of cards, uh, Francis, cause he's just evil. And even in real life, <laughs> turns out he's evil. So, um, but you know, it's like, thanks for your negative talk and reminding me what could go wrong, but let's just move it on, move on. Um, I'm just going to keep doing this. And I think that's one thing like I'm hearing from you. And I think a lot of people say about imposter syndrome, the more I talk to folks like, I'm privileged to talk to through down to Brown is that when I ask this question about it, it's a very common, <laughs> almost everyone shares it. And then B, mm-hmm. they just try to keep it moving and, you know, thank the voice, but move it forward and just keep doing what they do. I think it also helps that like a brand, like, I don't know if um, I'm putting words in your mouth, but also like the fact that you're constantly challenging yourself to thinking about how do I stay true to the people that I'm serving right and like I'm here for I think is a really great way to also feel like your efforts are sincere um and not as greedy you know (laughs) so (laughs) it's um I think it's a wonderful way to keep challenging yourself and keeping humble but imposter syndrome it's funny when you mentioned the line I wrote down is who even am I to start this I felt this way and I continue to about the podcast too And sometimes I don't understand if this is something that is just in general about um, maybe, okay, maybe it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, but my thought is, is this a South Asian thing or is this a common thing for anyone who has imposter syndrome where that feeling of like, who are you? Like there are a lot of words and phrases in South Asian culture that are like, you know, this person thinks they're like big, you know, and like more important than they are or like. Huck, you know, like that kind of like, you know, um, a way of being like, how does this person think they're that important? Um, and wow. m- making it, you know, mitigating it, softening it and telling people to silence that. Like, I think that's something that maybe has just, again, it could not be mutually exclusive, but is this resonating? Like, I wonder at all, like, you know, is it because yeah. we're also South Asian, you know, that we get that a lot more? 
Yeah. So it's interesting you bring this up and, you know, the idea of imposter syndrome, because I've had this discussion with my friends, my team. And I think the important thing here is, you know, I felt it with my brand. You felt it with the podcast and, you know, we're both well into adulthood, but I think that we all have been able to maneuver it so well because when you grow up not being in a place of privilege and having things handed to you, you experience imposter syndrome from a very young age, right? So I, Mm -hmm. growing up in the deep South, I was in a predominantly Caucasian private school. Um, My parents, they made good money. They were, you know, my mom drives a Mercedes. My dad works well. My mom doesn't have to work. I grew up very middle-class, upper middle-class, but compared to my classmates growing up, all of their parents were doctors, lawyers, business people. And my father Mm -hmm. owned convenience stores. And from a very young age, you're just reminded of what makes you so different. And I always thought, why am I taking up space in this school? I don't deserve to be here. Um, And so I think on so many levels, we as, you know, yes, South Asian, as immigrant, as just people of color, we often are dealing with imposter syndrome from such a young age that at this point, it's like, bring it on, you know? Yeah, I know. That's actually a great attitude. Yeah. And I think on the brown side of things, on the South Asian side, because again, so many, and I don't know if you're first gen or if your parents were born and raised Mm -hmm. here. First generation. Right. So I think, again, to their mentality, it's always been, we gave up everything. This has to go perfect. Our kids have to have the best life. And so to them, it's always kind of been this idea of keep your head down, keep it pushing, make accomplish the things you need to accomplish and everything will be okay. But for those of us who grew up here, it's like, well, yeah, I hear you and I agree with you, but also I have something to say. And I, yeah. I think that my voice is valid. And so, yeah, I think we're raised to just, you know, you're nothing special. You're, and that's like the whole boomer thing, right? Like why do these kids these days all have an opinion? Um, but I, I think that's what makes us so unique. And I think the imposter syndrome, as ugly as it is, um, it reminds you that you are valid. You are bringing something to the table. And if you did not have this podcast or if I did not have this brand, there would be I think parts of the conversation missing and that's just kind Mm -hmm. of how myself and my team remind ourselves of where we are, you know? No, I really appreciate that. And I agree with you because there's so many of us out there now, which is such a great world to live in, right? It's so different from what we maybe grew up with. Mm -hmm. Um, But even just being a voice can help because maybe there are a few other people who connect with your specific experience, right? And you can make an impact in those lives. And Um, even just a moment of relief or connection where like, I'm not alone. Um, And, you know, I know imposter syndrome, like this is a topic we could keep going on for a whole episode itself. But (laughs) the last thing I will say is sometimes it feels like being just a brown person plopped in a society that is mostly right. Caucasian can already just in that in itself, that is the imposter piece. And even sometimes like the way my parents, um, especially talked about it was the piece you mentioned where it's like, you know, where you came here, we're making these sacrifices so you can have a better life. And they also sort of simultaneously felt like almost like sympathy. They would almost like forgive racism and stuff in a way that was like, well, they're not used to us. This is their home anyway. And we're the ones coming. And I always thought this was so interesting because I vehemently disagreed, right? Like to me, I was like, I'm born. This is part of my world. This is where I belong, you know, and this is, I'm entitled to America just as much as the, any other person. Um, but at the same time, like it makes you, it stays with you that 
messaging in your brain. And sometimes I feel like I'm like, yeah, who do I think I am walking around in American outfits or even just like existing mm-hmm. as a brown person <laughs> in this town, you know, like that's like mostly sure. why I drew something. So it can become very unhealthy. Yeah. I did not want to leave this conversation without acknowledging, you know, speaking of multiple voices in this space, there is such a wonderful momentum happening with South Asian owned beauty and um, the industry itself having more representation. We have, you know, Liv Tinted, Kulfi, there's like, you know, Ranavut, uh, Sahajan, like I saw Shaz and Kicks, Kikis or Kicks, I think, in Credo. And like, this is becoming normal. And I realized the other day I was like, wow, like, most of my, all of my face actually was a Asian owned product. And mm. I never thought I would live to see that day. Right. Like, so, um, I am curious how you're thinking about Mira beauty and how it competes with and shares this space with this brand in a place where we're also seeing more of them. Yeah. So I, again, going back to the idea that because I don't think that we should be tokenized. I think there's room for all of us. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, to name some of the brands, I think Live Tinted is probably, at least in my opinion, one of the biggest South Asian-owned brands currently with such widespread access. Um, yes. I think that their makeup is very intentional and very natural, right? Their entire, I think, aesthetic, their entire movement is in that direction. Whereas my palettes, for instance, are all such loud colors. Um, so I, I never see an overlap. I think that that's amazing what they're doing. And Deepika, for instance, the owner, I mean, I still remember her going viral so long ago. And I was, um, I was a kid at the time, but when she did the color correcting with the red lipstick and how that blew up and she was on the news because of it, that, you know, that I think can't, can't not shape me in some way as the brown kid growing up. Um, and then Gulfi Beauty, they, I kind of discovered Gulfi, I think maybe in the last, sometime this year, I would say earlier this year, um, but they released those Gajal liners. And I think mm-hmm. most importantly, like um, their social media, they do these amazing Instagram lives where they have these important discussions, you know, centered around um, South Asian identity and mental health specifically. Yeah. I just think, you know what, like I'm still growing. And one of my goals for Mira is to be able to put out a full face, right? Start to finish all of the products needed. Um, But for Mm -hmm. the time being, I think that we're all putting out such unique and different products. And I love it. You know, let's do a whole face of South Asian owned brands. Why not? Let's share this together. And I've received nothing but support from them. Um, Multiple members on Coolfee's team follow me. I follow them. And they've always been so nice, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. I'm so happy to hear that. And I would agree. Like, I think I'm noticing more and more, I'll be quick with this analysis, but growing up, I felt like it felt a little bit more competitive. Um, And now it doesn't feel as much because I think we're realizing there's room for all of us, right? Like Mm -hmm. before there was that, like, if you remember where you size up kind of silently, like the brown person you're walking past because you're like, you're Indian, I'm Indian. Right. Um, But like, (laughs) you don't like acknowledge like, hey, sister, like, right, like, hey, brother. So like, I think it's um, very different now. And I think that's amazing, because it goes back to that point about like uplifting each other, there's room for all of us, it can only get better this way, we all win this way. 
And to your point about the palettes, like I do see, and this isn't like a unique, like, wow, Wahari, what a cool insight that you only had. But I feel like we're (laughs) seeing so many brown women claim the their loudness and their an unapologetic loudness about themselves that is yeah. being expressed in different clothing or choices of life. Um, makeup is a huge way hair, right? So like different ways, which people could dismiss as like, Oh, it's just physical stuff. But you're like, no, no, no. This is how I tell my kind of poetry about my body. And I feel like makeup, your makeup for that reason to me stood out as well, because I have really gravitated towards that type of boldness, the avarice that you were talking about, because all my life mm-hmm. I was told to be subtle and like, uh, too much makeup, too bright, you know, don't wear red. It looks what bad on your dark skin and like loud colors, right? Like, exactly. and now we're like, fuck that. It looks good on everyone and it's how you wear it. Right. And it's, it just is such a great, like, sometimes you feel muted and maybe lip tinted is the thing you want. Sometimes you want to like explode with a turmeric yellow, you know, from the Bombay <laughs> baby, like palette. So I really, really appreciate how you thought about that. And you've decided that this is my niche and that's what I'm going to do really, really well. Exactly. Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> but the last question I wanted to ask was your newest palette um, that just released is different from what you've done before and that it's a graphic eyeliner. So uh-huh. can you tell us a little bit about why you des- decided to do graphic eyeliner and how do we use it? Yeah. So I have always been so in love with graphic liners and I think they blew up back in like 2020, summer of 2020, we're all at home at the peak of quarantine and they just went crazy on TikTok and Instagram. And I didn't know why I loved them so much. And then I realized they reminded me of holy, of childhood, mm. of you know, throwing those pigments, get, being covered head to toe in these like bright colors. And the beauty of graphic liner, because it's water activated, it's a very thick water activated, I should say opaque, because you can control the thickness. It's an opaque um, liquid once you add the water. So it'll be just as loud and bold on the deepest of skin tones versus the lightest of skin tones. Everyone can be so bold with it. Um, so yeah, and to use it, you know, it comes, it's very similar to like the, the water paints we would play with as kids. And I think maybe that's on a level why I gravitated towards it as well. Oh, um, I love that. Yeah, you can even use like, you know, you can buy these super expensive brushes, but I always recommend just the brushes you get with children's, you know, paint. They're so thin, um, they're so precise. And you just take a little dot of butter and swirl it around in the pigment and it becomes this almost like thick gel. You do what you want, and then you just let it air dry until the next time you use it. And that's the beauty of it. All you need is water. Oh, my God. I love that. I'm perfecting it currently. (laughs) Are you Um, you enjoying it? I love the colors. Oh, my gosh. This was like my dream palette, and I am just figuring out the chemistry of the water piece. But Mm -hmm. it looks so good. I love that it shows up very clearly because I feel like one of the things that's really hard is like pigment showing on brown skin especially the darker you are right um like I'd always buy like lavender and be like wow this doesn't look like the white chick who wore it in the photo and on me it's like is it there um so that's something that I love (laughs) exactly and I think specifically for pastels you know they always say black and brown people can't wear pastels and understandably so especially in eyeshadow what is so vivid on a white skin might be super ashy and dull on our skin. But yes. with the graphic liner, you get that exact same color you see in the pan 
on your skin as long as if you use too much water of course it'll be much thinner um but that's just you know you mix it in with more pigment and make it as thick and opaque as you want and then it really it's so true to pan and that's why i'm so happy we finally were able to release these liners you know a year late to the trend but that's okay uh to me it's like a timeless piece of beauty i i hope that people are using graphic liners till the day i die <laughs> Yeah, I think um, you'd be surprised how many of us are catching up just now, though. So <laughs> it's still good timing. <laughs> um, Harsh, I cannot thank you enough. This was such a wonderful conversation. And I learned so much. I have so Aww. much respect for your brand already, but it just increased even more to hear the story, the passion, the love behind it, the faith and belief in it. And thank you for your patience as well for my internet connection and family noises. Of course. I'm so thankful for you to have me. I feel like I don't often get to have these conversations with people who aren't on my team. And it's such a cathartic experience. So thank you for creating the space you're creating with your of podcast. Course. I've thoroughly been enjoying myself listening to all of the others. Thank you. You know, I prepared you hopefully fairly okay. that I'll just ask some quick questions that First thing that comes to mind, you answer. Um, it'll be rapid fire. I'm going to try this season to not have to dig in until the end because otherwise I make this into another mini interview. So okay. are you ready, Harsh? I think so. Let's do it. <laughs> You're in Georgia. So I have to ask, what's your favorite Georgia-only food chain or food item? Um, okay. Biscuits and sweet tea. Mm. No question. Yes. We do it the best down here. Period. Agreed. <laughs> you get to do a collaboration with a makeup company. What's the dream? Fenty. I yes. eat Fenty, period. I'm going to try not to also do too elaborative answers. Um, so yes, Fenty. Okay. <laughs> you have exclusive access to go backstage to any artist concert. Who would you pick? Beyonce, forever till I die. Oh, Yes. That, yes, okay, Queen can't Bee. go into further. The sexiest <laughs> body part about someone? Their hands. Ooh. Yeah. I like it. Um, fuck, Mary kill. Primer, makeup remover, SPF. Uh, fuck, Mary kill. Um, Mary SPF, that is so mm -hmm. important. Um, what else is left? Makeup remover, Pink primer. Um, I'm going to... Fuck primer. I fuck uh -huh. with primer, let's say. It's important. Um, <laughs> uh, I take so that back. I kill primer. I'm going to kill primer. I'm going to fuck with makeup remover. It's very important for skincare. Yes. Primer, whatever. Yeah. No, I primer agree. Goes. I think there are other ways to work around primer. I agree. Um,